In Chicago, you know that all sports rock. The Bears, Hawks, Bulls, Cubs, and Sox. Pick your favorite, you can choose. As long as the Packers lose. For everything you need to know, it's Bill Swarski Sports Talk Chicago. Bill Swarski Sports Talk Chicago. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Bill Swarski Sports Talk Chicago. This is your solo host, Alex. Our brave leader, Sean, is not here tonight. He is seeing his daughter perform at the Paramount Theater in Aurora, Billy Elliot the Musical. So she's performing tonight, and Sean is there to be her support. So we wish her all the best in her performance, and I'm sure they're going to put on one hell of a show. Sounds like she's really into it. So good luck. Break a leg. Figuratively, not literally. Please don't do that. But first, before we go any further, we would like to thank our sponsor, the Rockford Ice Hogs. If you're not familiar with the Rockford Ice Hogs, they are the AHL minor league affiliate of your Chicago Blackhawks. What does that mean for you? You'll get to see the stars of tomorrow today at family-friendly affordable prices. Right in the middle of the season, Lucas Reichel is now down. So if you want to see him play with a bunch of the other Ice Hogs, head on over to IceHogs.com. Get yourself a hat, shirt, jersey, tickets, and more. Tell them Swirsky Sports sent you. Okay, so we have a number of things to talk about when it comes to Chicago sports. We've had some news. We have baseball, spring training in full swing. Got some Bears to talk about. A little bit of Blackhawks. So we'll get all to it. Let's start with the Bears news. Uh, There was two notable roster moves that were made earlier this week. None of which come to a surprise. So it was announced that Eddie Jackson and Cody Whitehair have been released by the Bears. With these cuts, the Bears now are at roughly $68 million in cap space for 2024. And clearing them cleared up $21 million. So it's a lot of money coming off the books. And as I said before, both of these moves were predictable. We saw Cody Whitehair really struggle and Eddie Jackson is, you know, not the Eddie Jackson he was a few years ago. Um he's had some injury issues over the past few years and just hasn't been the same guy. And it's really easy to kind of be like, yeah, get him out of here, get rid of him. Yes. It was the right time to cut them. But I do think that Eddie Jackson and Cody Whitehair both deserve a good send-off. Because these two guys were overall very good players throughout most of their Bears tenure. Especially Eddie Jackson, those first few years he was in the NFL. We saw how good he was when he was a pro bowler and all-pro in 2018. When he had six interceptions, two pick-sixes, and was an AV of 13. And we saw how clutch those interceptions were. He picked off Aaron Rodgers to seal the NFC North victory in that clincher at Soldier Field in 2018. He also had that game-winning pick six against the Lions on Thanksgiving when he took it to the house on a Matt Stafford pass uh, when they had Chase Daniel at quarterback. So the Bears were going into that game ahead of the NFC North, and Mitch Trubisky was hurt. They were just trying to survive with Chase Daniel, and that game-winning pick six pretty much just put them completely in the driver's seat 
And not to mention that game at Soldier Field between the Vikings and the Bears that year, where it was a tight game. The Bears were leading. They were only up by a score. And then Eddie Jackson had that pick six against Kirk Cousins that all but sealed the deal. So if you look back at that season, Eddie Jackson had clutch picks against Aaron Rodgers, Matt Stafford, and Kirk Cousins, all of which led to an NFC North title. And, you know, even in 2019, when he didn't have the sexy interception numbers he had the year before, he had six in 2018, two in 2019, he was still a pro bowler and a very, very good secondary player. Um, He was, you know, a little differently played in Chuck Pagano's system versus uh, Vic Fangio's system the year before, but he still played pretty well. And then things kind of started to fall off a little bit with him, but those first few years, he was really damn good, and he deserves a shout-out. And Cody Whitehair, we've talked about Cody Whitehair a bit on this show in the past, and you know we knew for a while that his time as a Bear, despite what he was making money-wise, it was clearly coming to an end. It just wasn't going as well with him on the field. But again, those first few years, he was a really nice offensive lineman. He was a pro bowler in 2018 like Eddie Jackson. And he was, I believe, the longest tenured bear on the roster. And it was either him or maybe one of the long snapper. But now that Cody Whitehair and Eddie Jackson are gone, you're really kind of saying goodbye to that Ryan Pace era where they were competitive. It wasn't nearly as long. You didn't get a playoff win. But... You know, 2016, everything was starting from the bottom. 2017, you built up. 2018, you won the division. 2019, you went 500, missed the playoffs. 2020, you went 500, but you made the playoffs. So that three-year stretch where they were overall competitive, again, I'm not saying we have to glorify it, but that was an era that we had, and that's pretty much gone now. I mean, you have a few guys left that Ryan Pace drafted, like uh, Cole Komet was drafted by Ryan Pace, and uh, Tevin Jenkins was drafted by Ryan Pace. Ryan Pace brought in Cairo Santos, but yeah, a lot of those guys are all gone. I mean, that that defense from 2018 that was so stout, Eddie Jackson was like the last guy from that. Kyle Fuller's long gone. Khalil Mack's long gone. Akeem Hicks is long gone. Prince Hamukamara is long gone. You know, it's that era is over. And we say goodbye to two of the notable remaining pieces of that era. Because you got to remember, Cole Komet and Tevin Jenkins were brought in, you know, towards the end of the Ryan Pace era. But, you know, when they won that division title in 2018, Cody Whitehair and Eddie Jackson were two parts of that. So we definitely wish them well. They served their time here. They did some good things. But it definitely was time to move on. You know, Cody Whitehair, he's 31 years old. And yeah, it's it's pretty old in the NFL. And Eddie Jackson, he is 30. So they're both 30 plus years old. And I think that it was more than obvious we had gotten the best out of them years ago. So they're moving on. And we know that the Bears are going to address center this offseason. And, you know, you have options to go out there and find replacement for Eddie Jackson, whether that's free agency or you draft somebody. 
And Sean and I, as you know, we go this off season, we'll talk more about the options that are out there. But I mean, for this conversation right now, we just know that we're making a change and we know why we're making a change. So that was really the big bears news in terms of the roster. Um, then, you know, there's the just endless, endless Caleb Williams, Justin Field stuff. And I know people want to look at the Kevin Warren interview and, you know, some of the stuff he said about Justin Fields. Look, right now, Justin Fields is still a member of the Bears. And you're not going to see the president of the team badmouth somebody or indicate there's going to be any sort of change in a public interview. Whether they decide to move on from him or not. You're just, he's not going to show any cards or drop any hints of what the Bears are going to do in the draft. And I do think that at the end of the day, Ryan Poles makes this decision. And I think that Kevin Warren will back the answer no matter what. But that's in Ryan Poles' hands. And neither Poles or Kevin Warren, or anybody for that matter within that organization, are going to show their cards. Right now, Justin Fields is quarterback number one for the Bears. And he's going to be until otherwise shown. Whether that's drafting Caleb Williams first or trading Justin Fields, whatever. It's Until that happens, Justin Fields is the quarterback. And you're not going to indicate that you're unhappy with him or that you're ready to move on. It's just not realistic. So to me, those words, what, what Kevin Warren said... I, I don't read much into it. It's just, it's unrealistic to expect some sort of crypto message within an interview from the president of the team just after the Super Bowl ends. I mean, we're still a few months away from the draft. We're not even at free agency yet. Not saying the Bears are going to get a free agent quarterback, but I mean, you know, right now you have teams, you know, planning to make cuts and, you know, like the Bears just did making cuts. You know, you're not you're not signing any big free agents. You're not making any massive trades at the moment. So this is where we are. We're, we're in that point where everything is just talk. The draft isn't here yet. We're waiting for free agency. We wait and see. And this Justin Fields, Caleb Williams stuff is going to be beaten to death. And we vowed not to keep bringing it up, but I just wanted to bring this conversation up, putting in the context of the Kevin Warren interview. And frankly, that's really all I got to say about the Bears right now. So we're going to move on from that. There is a big story in Chicago sports, and you kind of knew the timing of this announcement that it was going to garner an unpopular reaction. You know, the Friday news dump, as they call it, to try to kind of put things under the rug. But let me tell you about the modern world is the social media age, the Friday news dump. Yeah, it's just not what it used to be. You try to dump news anytime, anywhere, Guess what? It's going to garner attention, whether it's good, bad, controversial. But this news leaked on Friday. 
And according to Cranes, it's revealed that White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf is seeking $1 billion, $1 billion worth in public money to fund the new White Sox stadium in the South Loop. And when that news broke, I think everybody in the state of Illinois was pretty much on the same page. Whether you're a White Sox fan, whether you're a Cubs fan. And that was basically get bent, Jerry. $1 billion worth of public funding. Now, Crane's Chicago Business, the headline, says, Reinsdorf confident White Sox will get $1 billion subsidy for new South Loop Stadium. And I'm sure, you know, you're trying to Use your businessy talk and, you know, no new taxes, as George Bush once said. But $1 billion worth in public money. That's a shit ton of money. And Jerry Reinsdorf is a billionaire. The same billionaire that has yet to give out a $100 million plus dollar contract for a player on the White Sox. Andrew Benatendi and Yasmani Grandal are the biggest contracts in White Sox history. And they're one of the very few teams who have not given out a contract the size of $100 million or more. Few remain. The Royals just gave a massive, massive deal to Bobby Witt Jr. The tiny little Royals who the White Sox want to be for some reason. Did you guys know that Mike Moustakis is now in White Sox camp? Is that like, it it almost feels like they're doing this bit on purpose. Like for years, people thought, oh, Mike Moustakis, he'll end up on the White Sox. And sure enough, here he is. Years after his best production as an invitee to camp, non-roster invitee, Here's Mike Moustakis, another former Royal, brought in by Chris Getz, a former Royal. Um, We can get into that stuff later, but this stadium, when we saw the renderings, they looked pretty nice. Even as a Cubs fan, I say, hey, that's a nice-looking stadium. That's a nice-looking little area you're going to build. There were two big questions. One... How are you going to fund this? Jerry, you going to pay for it? And two, parking transportation. You know, you're going to have to make some alterations to get that infrastructure in the right position to field fans to a game. You know, it's easier than just putting up a stadium and putting a little ballpark village around it. You know, there's there's infrastructure and logistics that go into all of this. But he's seeking $1 billion of public money. The same guy that conned the state into building guaranteed right field. And I think guaranteed right field now, I think it's a nice ballpark. The food is 10 times better than Wrigley. I will give it that. The food is far superior on the south side. And you know what? I like the concourses at guaranteed rate. 
I like the amenities they have. I kind of like the ramps that go to the upper deck, you know, those those upper ramp structures where you walk in and you kind of walk up. They're spacious, they're easy to navigate, and even the concourse in the upper deck is nice and spacious. Like, I, I think Guaranteed Right Field now is a pretty nice ballpark, and I enjoy going to it. I, I really do like the atmosphere of a Sox game, especially when you smell the grilled onions and the sausage. I mean, that, that that's really good. And I know there are people who work there, um, who are very good at what they do in terms of, you know, game day entertainment and just the, the function of the game day there. Um, they do a good job. Now, keep in mind that the state has funded that stadium. And when they first built it, it was not nearly as nice as it is now. They've had to spend a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of years making that ballpark better. It was nowhere near as nice when it opened in the early 90s. And it was like a weird, like, quote, modern cookie cutter stadium. Because then the next year, the Orioles built Camden Yards, which changed everything back to future ballparks to that old retro type design. Guaranteed right field was built more like the cookie cutters of the 60s and the 70s. Not as gaudy, not as round, but it was more on those lines as opposed to the retro stadiums of old and of today. Now, again, they, they've changed the aesthetic of the ballpark in several areas to where it feels a lot less like one of those cookie cutters, but it looked more like that when it first opened. And, you know, it, it was just, it was a like a silverish gray and baby blue aesthetic that just was not very appealing. And then you slowly added amenities and you slowly restructured the upper deck and then you added in the green seats which look much much better than the baby blue seats and you made it look better you made it function better you gave it more to give the fans but jerry reinsurf got his sweet deal once and he's trying to get it again and that is really rubbing a lot of people the wrong way and i think that a lot of people can agree hey jerry you should be paying more for this I mean, we all had this feeling that they were going to ask for public funding. But when that $1 billion uh, headline showed up, yeah, that really uh, that really got people going. So, yeah, the renderings look great. It would be cool to have that new stadium for the Sox. But, you know, do we want all that money going towards it of public funding? And I know there are a lot of people that don't, want the Sox to move from the rate. I think a lot of people still like going there. And again, I I don't mind going there. You know, obviously for Southsiders who have lived in that area for generations, it's easy to get to. And even from the suburbs here, I mean, you know, from the Western Burbs, I get on the Eisenhower, you take it to the Dan Ryan. It's really not that difficult. Um... But look, I, I get the location itself, for a number of reasons, doesn't have that Wrigleyville appeal. I mean, Wrigleyville, you got bars and restaurants and entertainment. It's a it's a fun district for people to do things. Jerry didn't want that. It, you know, he, he built his ballpark 
next to where old Comiskey was. And, you know, it's in Bridgeport, blue collar Bridgeport. You know, you don't have a Wrigleyville around it. You got parking lots for tailgaters. You have a few bars here or there, but it's not Wrigleyville. And I do think that in the modern age of sports, it's good, especially for big market teams, to have these sort of villages and neighborhoods dedicated to entertainment and the ballpark. Like Wrigleyville, like Yawkey Way in Boston. And I mean, even look what like Green Bay's done with Lambeau Field. They've turned that into an entertainment district. And, you know, you're seeing this climb more and more. And, you know, you don't have that on the south side. But I, I, the actual ballpark, I think, now is fine. My really only complaint about the ballpark itself is I do still feel like the upper deck's a little too steep and a little too high above the action. But th- th- that's just me. I mean, everything else I think is fine. Though I know Sox fans are a little unhappy with some of their policies. Like, oh, you have to have this level of ticket to access this area. I mean, that that's that's just more obnoxiousness from ownership. And it's just another insult to the fans. But, you know, this this was something that when it first came up, maybe it's been a month now. It's, you know, it, it kind of came out of nowhere. And it said serious talks about a new stadium. And I think a lot of people got excited. A lot of people got excited. And even for people who like guaranteed rate, you're thinking, okay, hey, here's a stadium with a city view closer to the city, you know, maybe easier access for some people. Um, And then, you know, now you have this come up and you just wonder how this is going to transpire. And I don't know how this is going to transpire, but, you know, that that's a big ask. A very big ask. And I know a lot of people aren't happy about it. And and you know, that's that's really all I got to say about this current situation. Like, I roll my eyes towards Jerry, but I I think that it's, it's too bad that something potentially really cool for White Sox fans is, you know, turning into another, ugh, here's Jerry Reinsdorf again. But we'll see. We'll see. Because ongoing with this is the Bears and the Arlington Heights stuff. And they're clearly not getting the funding they want for a stadium in Arlington Heights. And there's questions on whether that's going to happen. Maybe it still will. I think a lot of people still believe it will. It just might take longer and they might have to pull more resources and there might be more negotiating. And it's it's not going to be as easy as we thought. So, you know, it's two, two teams, two major teams juggling this right now. I mean, you know, the other teams aren't going anywhere. The Bulls and the Blackhawks will be in the United Center, you know, for the foreseeable future. And the Cubs are never going to leave the corner of Clark and Addison. But you got the Bears and the White Sox in the middle of these stadium negotiations and, you know, looking towards the future and, well... We'll just see how it all plays out. But just on the topic of baseball, we will then head into some spring training talk as guys have reported to camp, pitchers and catchers are there, pitchers are working out, they're stretching, they're throwing, and some position players have reported to camp, they're getting their work in now, 
And Cody Bellinger is still a free agent. Matt Chapman is still a free agent. Jordan Montgomery is still a free agent. Blake Snell is still a free agent, among a few others. And uh, just nothing on the Cody Bellinger front with the Cubs. Just nothing. What we do have is Shota Imanaga looking nasty in camp. We've heard guys like Justin Steele comment on it. We have Kyle Hendricks back feeling good. And some Christopher Morrell nuggets. We got Craig Council talking about how he is having Christopher Morrell focus at third base. Because right now, there is no definitive third baseman. And frankly, if these are the options you're going to have that's currently on the roster, it would be in best interest to have Christopher Morrell be able to effectively figure things out at third because he's the best offensive producer of your options. The question is, can he be a major league third baseman? That's what we're trying to find out. That's what Craig Council is trying to find out, what they're trying to work for. And, you know, even Craig Council said, hey, we're going to see where it goes. So this isn't saying, hey, he's our number one third baseman going to opening day. They're trying it right now. That's where his focus is. But they're not naming him the opening day third baseman right now. Maybe things change. Maybe they do get a sweet deal on a Matt Chapman. Not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying maybe. And you look at your other options. You have Christopher Morrell. And then below that, your other options are Miles Mastroboni, Patrick Wisdom, Nick Magical, and Michael Bush. Nick Magical was surprisingly good defensively last year at third base. But as I've mentioned on the show before, you don't want your guy at the hot corner slugging under 400. You want power run production from that spot. Hey, Wisdom can hit you 20-plus home runs. Yeah. He'll also strike out and really be a two-outcome hitter. He can hit 20 of them, but a lot of holes in that bat. And at this point, I think more of a matchup player than an everyday player. And Miles Mastroboni, he proved to be a good bench bat slash defender last year. In the second half, when he wasn't playing every day, which was freaking ridiculous, but when he was being used as a 26th utility man, okay, yeah, I, I like him in that spot. That's fine. But again, he's not going to be your everyday third baseman. It shouldn't be your everyday third baseman. So, of all the options you have on the roster now, Christopher Morrell would be your best bet in terms of the overall player and what he brings. But he's got to play that position effectively. You don't want someone at third that's not at least somewhat adequate. You know, if he he went to third and he played Aramis Ramirez level third base, okay, that ain't a gold glover, but it's adequate enough as long as he continues to produce offensively. If he's putting up a 120 WRC plus and 26 homers, yeah, you can get away with being just okay at third base. And really just okay is what I would hope from him. I'm in no way expecting him to be a a positive DRS type third baseman, a gold glover, but you got to at least be somewhat adequate. And he hasn't shown that at that position yet. And I really like Christopher Morrell. I really want him on the team, but your, your hot corner, you can't, treat the hot corner like you would 
left field. You know, plenty of teams can put out a subpar fielding left fielder as long as they hit and produce. The Cubs did it with Kyle Schwarber. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of staunt left fielders out there. I mean, Ian Happ's a very good defensive left fielder. He's a back-to-back gold glove winner. Uh, He had all those assists last year. But, you know, point being is if you're looking at the outfield, it's really in your best interest to have the best defender in center field if you're not going to have an all-out good outfield defense. So you can get away with things, having a meh left fielder more than an infielder. But if you have a, a third baseman that's adequate enough, then okay. You just, you need to be adequate, not terrible. So we'll see how that unfolds. I still think the Cubs will get Cody Bellinger back. Not saying this has anything to do with third base, but I'm just saying I I think they will. I just, these these negotiations were, we're recording right now, February 18th, and there's no real anything that appears to be close. Could be into March, could be tomorrow, could be next week, who knows. But it felt pretty inevitable for a long time that when Cody Bellinger does sign wherever he goes, that it was going to be after the Super Bowl. And guess what? He's not signed. It's after the Super Bowl. It's a week after the Super Bowl. So you had the gut feeling, and sure enough, that's what it was. But until then, you know, you got to work with what you got to work with. Yeah, Christopher Morrell at third. You got a rotation of Steele, Tyone, Imanaga, Hendricks, Wicks. And you want to add a sixth starter in there, maybe Javier Assad. But really wish they would add one more. I would like Jordan Montgomery on this team. I really would. I don't think it's going to happen. That's just, I, I don't see it necessarily happening. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not, I'm not betting on it. Just not betting on it. I like Jamison Tyone. I thought that his second half was encouraging last year because he really was pretty dang solid in that second half. But man, I don't want him to be your second day starter come opening day. I, on a good team, if you take Tyone's best and you put him on a good team, that should be your four. He could be a really good four on a contending team. Like a Jason Hamill. A good, solid veteran, as long as he's pitching like he did in the second half, not like the first half where things were just awful. Again, this is all assuming that Tyone bounces back. And I feel solid that he will. I mean, if he started 29, 30 games and gave you like a 405 ERA and like a 390 FIP. Okay, I could take that in a vacuum. You just would hope that your number two starter at some point would be more than that. And I mean, right now it's kind of shaping up what it's going to be. Because Imanaga's probably going to be your three. Kyle Hendricks is probably going to be your four or five at this point. And Justin Steele is going to be your number one. I mean, it's, it's, I just don't think it's good enough yet as a whole, just like the roster. I don't think it's a terrible roster, but I don't think it's good enough. I think you're just, 
right if you look at the roster right now, you're kind of just in that feeling of between 77 and 82 wins. And if all goes right, that could get you into the postseason. But things got, you know, you got to assume health. You got to assume everyone's playing at the top of their game. And you also got to hope that some of these prospects that the Cubs and I think some people are putting a lot of stock in, you hope that that works. I sure as hell hope that P. Crow Armstrong takes that step forward. I mean, no matter what, I think P. Crow Armstrong is going to be an elite center fielder. He's a freak out there. How is his back going to come around? I'm not saying it's not going to. I'm not calling him a bus or anything, but you know that's something that still has to be figured out at the major league level. You know, that's part of development. And we see plenty of guys succeed, and we see plenty of guys that don't. And you don't truly know until you really see it. You know, is Alexander Canario going to be part of the equation? How is Jordan Wicks going to do in his first full year as a big leaguer? Is there going to be a point where Owen Casey DHs later in the year? Is he going to get to that level of readiness? How is Matt Shaw going to progress? Maybe he doesn't have as much of an impact in 2024, but Matt Shaw is going to be one of those guys that you're really keeping an eye out for. And how is this Michael Bush kid going to do? They seem to be really high on this kid. And I hope he turns out. But man, they're putting a lot of stock in him right now. A lot of stock. And look, maybe if they make some moves, things will change a little bit. But as of right now, there's a lot of stock being put into this guy. And again, I'm not saying he's going to be a bust. It's just, you're taking a gamble here. You really are. I'm hoping that he... Hits the crap out of the ball on a regular basis. And maybe he does strike out a lot and he's not going to hit more than 240, but got a 30-plus home run bopper. Then there's a lot of value in that in this day and age. The lower batting average, swing and miss stigma has really died down with modern baseball as long as your lineup is balanced. You know, that's the other important thing, too. You might say, hey, does he get on base? Does he slug? Those are two essential things. Yes, they are. You do need some guys, obviously, that can play small ball. But if you have that balance, then that stigma is really not there. And I think at this point, you know, you look at Michael Bush and you hope, hey, maybe this guy can slug some homers and can play the matchups really, really well. That's what you got to hope. And it'll be interesting to watch him play in camp, see him get at bats, see how he does. And obviously, the results in camp don't really mean anything come season, but I think it's going to be important for him to find a groove and, you know, kind of show you and display what kind of things he can do. And I also think, too, that you look at the roster and say, well, do you got enough pop? I mean, right now, we can't include Bellinger in the equation because he's not signed. So what you have right now, I don't think there's a 30 home run hitter on this current roster. I think Suzuki can get hit 25 to 28. Ball goes well there. Ian Happ is kind of around that 20 mark, but you know we, we've seen him some years sacrifice a little bit of power for a little more on base and doubles. He hit 
20 plus last year. So I don't think it's out of the realm for him to hit 20. Obviously he's done it several times before, but I certainly wouldn't expect 30. Michael Bush, who knows? Yeah, Dansby Swanson will hit 20 to 22, probably. You know, those are uh those are your boppers right there, mainly. Hap Suzuki. You kind of hope that they can get 20 plus each. I'd like to see Suzuki get in the upper 20s. I'd like to see Michael Bush slug home runs. And I should add Christopher Morrell. He might be the one that's closest there. Morrell hit 26 in 107 games, and you factor in all the home runs he hit in the minor leagues when he was in AAA. So maybe he is the one to get you there, to 30-plus homers. But, you know, we we know that as much power as Morrell has, you know, he's been prone to those pretty awful slumps too. Not saying that can prevent him from hitting 30 homers in 150-plus games, but, you know, he's... He hits homers, but he's not, you know, Miguel Cabrera in his prime, you know, who always hit no matter what. You're going to see Morrell go through some slumps. And, you know, if he hits 30 homers and gives you a 120 WRC+, plus, you got to be really happy, even with the inevitable slumps that are probably going to happen with him. And again, you know, you talk about the stigma and, and batting average and all that, and, you know, really you want to look at you know, home runs, OPS, WRC+, plus, slugging. Those numbers are all good for Morel. You'll take that. But, you know, right now, it's it's not out of the realm to say he'd probably be your best candidate for home run leader on this current roster. You know, assuming all your key guys play full seasons. <clears throat> assuming Morel plays, you know, 120, 140 games. Suzuki plays 140-plus games. Dansby Swanson, the same. Ian Happ, the same. And then, you know, maybe somebody surprises you. But you don't look at this roster and say, hey, we got a guy that we know will hit 30-plus. I think Morrell can. Will he? We'll see. It's just a lot of questions. And I think it's one of those situations where you feel like it's another season of, you know, assuming even if you add Bellinger and maybe you surprise with one other bat. So if you add Bellinger and you assume he's putting up somewhat of the same numbers as last year, and you assume that Ian Happ does his usual thing and Dansby Swanson does his usual thing and, you know, Suzuki has a season similar to last year and Morrell has a similar production season last year, maybe taking that another step up. And then, you you, you know, you pair the more contact guys like Nico in there and, you know, center field. When will Pico Armstrong be back? But, you know, if you assume that, like, your veteran guys do what they do, then you can compete for a division title or a playoff spot. It's just you you don't have that one guy, that superstar commodity that can really kind of bring it together. And I think that's the one thing the Cubs are missing. 
And if you do bring Bellinger back and he continues on what he did from the year before, then yeah, you got a really darn good player who's been an MVP, who's been an all-star helping anchor that offense. But look, you don't have a Bryce Harper. You don't have a Shohei Otani. You don't have a Mike Trout. You don't have a Ronald Acuna Jr. You don't have a Pete Alonzo. You know, those are the level of players that I think the Cubs are lacking in. You got the coaches and the manager. You got the depth. You got plenty of roster depth. And some of it is might be a little too much considering a lot of that roster depth might be hodgepodge into what's the primary solution of a position that you would more ideally hope would be manned by a more star-type everyday player. But you have the depth. You seem to have the farm system. You know, a lot of outlets are high on this farm system. You got those elements there. It's just that that, that superstar-type guy is missing. An MVP 2016 Chris Bryant type. The type of Anthony Rizzo production you got from him all those years. The Javier Baez in his peak. It just right now, I don't see that level of stardom on this team. You have a lot of good and very good. Ian Happ's a good player. Dansby Swanson's a good slash very good shortstop. Nico Horner's a good second baseman, really good fielder. And while not a power producer, a solid hitter. Can hit you 280, 290, shoot the ball the other way. You know, he's but he's he's not like an Ozzy Albies. And you know, I think Suzuki is a very good producing right fielder. You know, the the arm is good, the glove is eh. Good player. Did you say a lot about these guys? You just want that star. Could PCA develop in that star? Maybe he can. Could somebody else from the farm system develop in that star? Maybe they can. You just don't know for sure right now. You don't have the bona fide proven guy. You don't have 2016 Chris Bryant. That's for sure. Maybe somebody will emerge. And, you know, that's kind of the thing, too, with this farm system. Definitely feels deeper than the Theo rebuild. But the Theo rebuild, the primary guys that they built up, I mean, they are top-line prospects. Chris Bryant was the gem, not only in the Cubs organization, but in all of baseball. The Cubs have a number of top prospects in a lot of rankings. Uh, top 100, that is. But you don't have that Chris Bryant level. Or, you know, to use today's example, a Jackson Holiday, who is like the bona fide number one guy or even a top five guy. Prospects can climb and advance. It happens all the time. It's always changing. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that's where we are right now. And all we can do is wait and see how this all turns out. Because I think there's a lot of questions, but we'll see. Kind of going back to the White Sox, you know, again, I mentioned... They brought back Mike Moustakis back to to the White Sox. Not back to the White Sox, to the White Sox. He hasn't been on the White Sox before. But back to the White Sox in the sense of he's been on the minds of the White Sox for a long time, and he's finally there. 
And, you know, just going into camp, uh, you hear Pedro Gafal talking about how he wants more from Tony La Russa. It's like, goodness gracious, just stop. Just stop. I I don't see Pedro Grafal being an effective leader of men in a clubhouse. Didn't show me last year, that's for sure. I still can't believe that a team with the talent the White Sox have on paper lost 100 games. I mean, if they went into last year and won like 79 games, 76, 76 to 79, kind of in that range, yeah, okay, I'd be like, listen, yeah, you got some talent, as did the mid-2010s White Sox, but, you know, your depth and your execution just wasn't there. But losing 100 games with that talent, well, that that's just, that's still mind-boggling to me. And I think leadership and culture was a huge issue. And, you know, maybe some of these moves Chris Getz is making will help improve that, but... Do they have that strong manager to lead? I I don't feel it. Pedro Caval could be a very smart baseball man. He's been in the game a while, so clearly he's been doing something right. But he's been in the game, and nobody's really interested in bringing him in as a manager. You could be a good coach and a good member of an organization and not be a good coach. We say it all the time, whether it's baseball or the NFL. A lot of great coordinators out there doesn't mean they make a great head coach. A lot of good baseball coaches out there doesn't necessarily mean they make a great manager. And maybe a a decent example to use could be Ricky Renteria. I think that guy is a really good coach and a really good guy for bringing up a team that's building up. He did some good things on the north side in their rebuild. He did some good things on the south side in his rebuild. But he just might not be a great manager. Now, he didn't really get much of a chance with the Cubs. He had one year, and then they said, oh, hey, Joe Mann's available. Take a hike, Ricky. And then Ricky became the manager of the White Sox for a number of years. And, you know, you could see that I think the team played for Ricky. They were energetic. I I think Ricky had a good culture with him, brings good culture. But the technicality on the mound what, not on the mound, but in the dugout, and when he goes to the mound and makes pitching changes, whether they're the decisions or how he creates lineups, that's uh, that's been a bit more questionable, and especially with those Rick Renteria lineups the White Sox had when they were finally trying to win. But he's a, he's a really good coach, and I think a really good guy to have around an organization, and, and maybe Pedro Grafal provides some value in being a coach or presence, but, man, I it, I just don't see it as a manager. I think he kisses up too much to the higher ups, the way he kissed up to Tony La Russa and just doesn't have that control over a locker room and culture. Like the way he envisioned. I don't know. I don't know. He didn't inspire much confidence in me as a manager last year. Um, Just as a more neutral observer as, as, as a non Sox fan, I, I, that that's kind of what I picked up and, yeah, I don't know, but those are the thoughts I really had on baseball. Uh, let's move on to a little bit of hockey. Connor Bedard's back. He's back and he's already scoring points and scoring goals. I was at the game against the Pittsburgh Penguins the other night, Thursday night when he came back. 
Um, when they announced he was coming back in the afternoon, I jumped on a ticket and I went to the game. They were down within 15 seconds and they lost four to one. Uh, Bedard definitely looked rusty in that first period, but started to pick things up, recorded an assist on the one Blackhawks goal. And then Saturday afternoon, the Blackhawks go out and they beat the Ottawa Senators. He has a point and an assist, a goal and an assist, I should say, and almost had two goals, but the second goal was called offsides. It was clearly offsides, but he made a nice move and it was a nice score even if it didn't count. So he's back. He's got a fishbowl on his face, but it's night and day when you have Connor Bedard, not in terms of wins and over quality of the team, but you just get a, a better sense of energy. And it's just more fun watching Connor Bedard because they're at the bottom of the standings and it's a rebuilding team that just is not good. They haven't won a road game in a long time, and they were on an eight-game losing streak heading into Saturday afternoon's game against the Senators. So it's been rough to watch, especially without Bedard. Bedard makes watching this rebuilding bad team fun. The cheers he got when he came out of the tunnel for the warm-ups were very noticeable. When he scored the goal in the game against the Senators, you could hear a particularly loud roar over the broadcast and the way they really cheered him when he was number one star of the game that night. So at least we get to watch Connor Bedard while this team will continue to not win very many games the rest of the year. Also, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Lucas Reichel's been sent down. It's been really disappointing. I thought Reichel was going to take a really nice step this year, and we're just not seeing the results. So he's back in Rockford. He'll be wearing an Ice Hog sweater for the time being. I don't know if there's something they can unlock down there, if it will kind of be a kick in the pants, whatever, but you just got to hope that some good will come out of this demotion. And I feel like a lot of us saw this coming, and not surprised by it. Really not surprised. The results have just not been there. So we'll see what comes of it. Um, I mean, the rest of the season, the Blackhawks are just going to play, lose a lot, but hopefully Connor Bedard will continue to do Connor Bedard things. And, you know, you got to understand, too, that this roster has a lot of young guys on it. You got Korchinski out there who's, you know, trying to grow. And that's going to be, obviously, a big development story as we continue to go along. Peter Morazic got another, you know, had another nice game. You know, he got a win against Ottawa in the last game. I know Ottawa's not great, but, hey, you take it. And, you know, I was at the game against Pittsburgh, and, you know, you watched Arvid Soderbloom and, Gave up a couple of bleh ones, and obviously the overall numbers on Soderbloom are not very good, though I will give him credit. He did also make some pretty good saves in that game against the Penguins. The Hawks really could have lost that game like 6-7-1, truly. Um, Crosby was still all over the ice. That guy can still play. He can still freaking play. And this was my first time seeing him in person. And I know a lot of people don't like Sidney Crosby and everything, but man, that dude can play. He is really damn good. And Malkin is really good, too. 
I'm glad I was able to say I could see them that evening. Because, you know, they're, they're not going to be playing much longer. And Sidney Crosby was Connor Bedard's idol as a kid. So seeing that matchup, you know, if Connor Bedard is going to be the player he is, and he's going to be a great, you can look back and say, you know, I remembered when he faced off against his idol, who was another all-time great. But it's too bad that Bedard probably won't be playing any meaningful games against him. Obviously, his first ever game was meaningful to him, but, you know, I don't think we're going to be seeing a Stanley Cup final between Sidney Crosby and Connor Bedard. But relish the moments while they can. The, the, The good moments that we do have. I watched the team mainly for Connor Bedard. It's not to say I dislike players on the team. It's just not good. And when Connor Bedard wasn't playing, it was really, really boring. Really boring. I, I mean, you average like a goal a game. You either score one or no goals in most of them. It's just, ugh. Taylor Hall's out. FNSCU's out, so they're not even factors. You know, and okay, Jason Dickinson, Nick Felino, they've been playing pretty solid. Gotta give him that. And Peter Morazic, too. He's had a really nice year. But as a whole, you just don't have much talent on the team. And, you know, we know why, and we've said it a million times why, and we could say it again, but... Tickets are still expensive. It's still expensive to go. Even on the resale. And, you know, overall, they're still drawing. There's a few games, you know, like the the Senators game and some of the lesser opponents. Yeah, okay, you'll have 16,000 there and you'll have a couple thousand empty seats. But boy, that's still infinitely better than the last time the Blackhawks were this bad in the mid-2000s. Because... There were games where they were drawing maybe 10,000, where it was half empty. So it's not like that. And you knew once they got Connor Bedard that they were going to sell tickets. People were going to go watch him play no matter how good or bad the team was. So, yeah, it's not surprising that the attendance is still pretty darn good. But, um, you know, it, it's it's not cheap. And the team's not good. So... I found the cheapest ticket possible. It was like 78 bucks with the fees all on top of it. Not bad seats, fourth level or uh fourth row, third level, 300 level. Right kind of to the right. Maybe by a row section, I should say, of center ice. So pretty good seats. Um but you know, then you add the to park your car was 35 bucks. One beer was like 13 bucks. So still spent over a hundred dollars to experience the worst team in the NHL. It's just still not cheap. I'm glad I went to the game to see Connor Bedard again, but yeah, you're, you're, you're paying for a product. That's not very good. So I'll probably watch most of the rest of the season on television. Will I make one more game? Yeah, maybe. We'll see. But, um, you know, 
it's hard to justify going to a lot of games, paying for a lot of games when the team is this bad. And the United Center still doesn't have cup holders, which I tweeted out during the game. I had my beer on the ground saying, cup holders, please, at United Center. And it drew a lot of interactions. It was just kind of funny. So we're kind of turning the on Twitter the uh, the lack of cup holders at the United Center is a bit, especially after the Toronto Blue Jays got their cup holders and they announced that. So I'm like, hey, they did it. Why can't the United Center do it? And I'm pretty sure a Blue Jays fan quote tweeted me and they said, we're starting a movement, which I thought was really, really funny. Uh, So yeah, I am now going to be um, part of the crusade of getting cup holders at the United Center. So if you're listening to this podcast, join my crusade. We must get cup holders at the United Center because I don't like drinking part of my beer and just putting it down under my seat. I feel like I want to hold on to it the entire time. Because people come back and forth through the row. You don't want someone knocking it over. You don't want it putting it too far under the seat. Could get knocked over there. And maybe some people even forget about it. So give me the cup holders, man. I want the cup holders. You know, the United Center has been around since, what, 95? And I, I believe somebody told me, because I was too young to remember the United Center when it first opened. And maybe I'm wrong. You know, if someone in the comments, whether you're listening on YouTube or wherever, if somebody wants to leave a comment and confirm this, that they had kind of the movie theater type cup holders where it's on the the, the armrest and they got rid of them. I don't remember that truly, but they might have had them when I was younger and I just don't remember um, but if you were to get cup holders at the United Center, I would want them on the backs of the seats. Like they have at ballparks, like at Wrigley Field. You don't have to have the movie theater style, but having a cup holder would be nice. So enough about that tangent. I wanted to just talk about that real quick, um, because I had to. <laughs> Not really, but I wanted to. Oh, yeah, Blackhawks, yeah. Bulls, eh. Just eh. It's NBA All-Star Weekend, so they're not playing. Just more of the same up and down. You know, they lost to the Cavs the other night. Game which they led a lot of it and ended up losing. It's cool to see Io DeSumo and Kobe White play well lately. I mean, Kobe White's really had a nice turnaround season. Iodosumu had a really, really good game last week. Really, really good game. And I really do like him. But, you know, the team as a whole is just not really destined for anything other than the playing tournament. Where we were last year. Just empty, mired in mediocrity. And that's all there really is to say for me right now. Don't have much more to add. We, we, we went in detail last week about how this team didn't do anything at the trade deadline. When other teams were interested, seemingly were interested, even in the likes of Alex Caruso or Andre Drummond. And I like both those players a lot, but keeping them around, not getting future assets, getting older and getting hurt, especially Alex Caruso, who's 
who tends to not play full seasons, not selling high on that to try to better things for the future, just as another big swing and miss by this regime. You haven't made a trade since Vooch midseason. You didn't move DeMar. You obviously couldn't move Zach Levine with the injury. But you didn't do anything. So really, I mean, my my interest in this team is really, really low right now. And I can't say I'm going to be spending a lot of time watching this team for the rest of the season because I'm just not interested. I want to watch Kobe White. If this team was if this team was actually saying, hey, we could get into the playoffs and maybe make some noise, hell yeah, I'd watch. And I would love every minute of Kobe White's resurgence. And I, I still do, but this team has just soured me so much. I'm like, why? Why am I why am I wasting time watching a team that doesn't really have an end game other than being stuck in purgatory? And okay, if they make the play-in tournament, yeah, I'll watch the play-in tournament. And if they somehow get past that, will I watch them get slaughtered by Boston or Milwaukee in the first round? Yeah, probably. But uh, you know, the rest of this regular season, it's just kind of it's kind of background noise for me at this point. At least with the Blackhawks, like I said, I like to watch Connor Bedard when he plays. And then, you know, spring training will be here. We'll get to watch some baseball. You know, all the Cubs games will be on television. I'll get to watch some meaningless spring training baseball that I oh so enjoy. But, man, just the Bulls have just... Ugh. It sucks. It sucks that I'm at an all-time level of apathy with that team. But I just am. I just am. It's hard to be overly emotionally invested in this team. I just... Why should I? Now, I watch the Bears religiously, no matter how angry and disgusted they make me. The Bears disgust me to no end. They are vile. Vile. They make me sick, but I still watch. I mean, you know, you play 17 games a year, and the NFL is the NFL, and even though my hope for the Bears has just been really, like, I've been broken as a Bears fan. But, you know, in the NFL, it's like, you know, things change all the time in the NFL. And, you know, you're able to go from worst to first, first to worst. And you get some things go your way. You have a schedule layout that's different every year. You know, you can get out of NFL purgatory, even if it's not necessarily easy. But you can get out of it. In NBA purgatory, like where the Bulls are in, how the hell do you get out of this? You could have helped get out of it by trading some of your assets for future assets, but you didn't. You didn't. DeMar going to walk for nothing? Or are you going to extend him too? Like Vooch, an aging player that is going on the downslope. We saw DeMar's peak. I love DeMar DeRozan. Good player. But he's getting up there. You're really going to just keep running back a core that's getting older and older that at this point doesn't have really a higher ceiling than a play-in tournament? You're not. You're probably not getting a good, you know, if you get the play-in tournament, especially, you're not getting a good draft pick. And even if you just miss the play-in tournament, the odds of you getting a great draft pick aren't good at all. And, 
I'm not an expert on the matter, but I don't think this draft class is overly shiny. You're not tanking for Wembenyana. That's for sure. And even if Wemby was available, your chances of getting him are microscopic. You know, if if there was one available, what I'm saying is your chances of if there was a Wembenyana and he was obviously going to be the first overall pick. If this was this year, not last year, even if you did get a lottery pick by not making the playoffs or any of that, chances of getting that are, are minuscule. But you're not going to get a good draft pick. The, the The odds are saying you're not going to get a good draft because I do feel like this team will be in the play-in tournament. You know, you look at the teams they're battling, and it's like, okay, the Hawks are not very good. You know, these some of these other teams around them are not very good. The Nets aren't very good. Detroit's obviously not good. They're at the bottom. You're not really worried about them, obviously, making the playing tournament. You know, you're more worried about other teams around you. But as mediocre as the Bulls are, it's easy for me to say, yeah, they'll be in the playing tournament. They, you know, I'm not saying I'm betting on it, but I think the chances are solid that they're going to be in the playing tournament. How they play the rest of the season, we'll see. You know, they've beaten up on a number of really bad teams. And you've had a few good wins against good teams, but, you know, a lot of your... A lot of your wins have been kind of against bum teams, and you've gotten killed by some of those better teams for the most part. I mean, they beat the Bucks at one time, but uh, huh. sometimes meh teams beat really good teams. Hey, the Grizzlies just beat the Bucks, So, you know, that'll happen from time to time, but well, guess what? You got to consistently win against better teams and you got to consistently win. To be something. So, here looking right now at the NBA standings. In the in the Eastern Conference, Boston is your number one seed. They got a pretty healthy lead on that one seed. Cleveland's creeped up into two. Cleveland is now the two seed in the East. Milwaukee's down to three. And they're eight and a half games back of Boston. Cleveland is six back. So, say the Bulls get into the playing tournament and somehow get through, you're going to Boston. You're probably getting swept or losing in five. You're, you're not going anywhere there. But, anywho, fourth seed is the Knicks. Five is the 76ers, six is the Pacers, and I gotta admit, I like that Pacers vibe. What they're building there, I'm not saying they're ready to contend for a championship, but I like the vibe that they have in Indiana. And I wish we had something like that at least. Seventh seed is the Miami Heat. The eighth seed is the Orlando Magic. The ninth seed is your Chicago Bulls at 26 and 29. And then behind you, two games behind you, are the Atlanta Hawks 
at the 10. And then, you know, just, just outside of that bubble for the play-in, you got Brooklyn, 21-33. So they have 33 losses. The Bulls have 29. Toronto with 36 losses. Sorry, Brooklyn's got 33 losses. Toronto's got 36 losses. Charlotte, they're 13 and 41. Washington, they're 9 and 45. Detroit, they're 8 and 46. So Charlotte, Washington, Detroit, yeah, they're not doing anything. And Toronto, 1936, 99% chance they're not doing anything. Brooklyn, 2133. They're not likely. Maybe they creep in. But I just, I don't think that team's very good. So, I mean, right now, the teams right around the Bulls are the Atlanta Hawks in the Orlando Magic. Magic right above you. Atlanta's right below you. Though the Magic have a multi game lead ahead of you, they're 13 games back of the one seed. The Bulls are 17. So you're separated by more than one game between the Magic and the Heat as of right now. 29 losses for the Bulls, 25 losses for Orlando. And then Atlanta, they're 19 back of the one seed. 31 losses for Atlanta, 29 for the Bulls. So, I mean, you know, I I think that it's very possible this Bulls team is in the playing tournament. I just think there's a lot of crap at the bottom of the the conference where you're like, okay, you know Detroit's not catching you. You know Washington's not catching you. You know Charlotte's not catching you. And you know Toronto's probably not catching you. And I don't think Brooklyn is catching you. You know, Atlanta, sure, they might pass you. And Orlando has, they've outplayed you, that's for sure. They've won those head-to-head matches. And then, you know, Miami, they'll heat it up when it it means most. So, okay. Another playing tournament? Great. Great. Cool. It's just black. That's all I gotta say. Just black. So, with that note... I think we are just about ready to wrap things up here on Bill Swirsky Sports Talk Chicago. I want to thank you all for listening. It is definitely a fun challenge to do a podcast solo. More fun when my partner Sean's around, that's for sure. But every now and then having the opportunity to kind of have that challenge of just talking solo is it's a fun one. It's interesting. It's, it's not easy. Let me tell you. Hosting a solo podcast is not easy, but it can be fun from time to time. But I will be happily welcoming back Sean for our next episode when we're back together again and we're doing our shenanigans and talking about Marty Havlak Crockpots, Bill's Fan Puke, uh, Rotting Pumpkins at Gallagher Way, and all that other good jazz. So... Be sure to check us out at SworskySports.com. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, X, at Sports, Facebook.com, Sports. 
Also, be sure to check me out at alexandercreative.com and my Twitter handle is at shyfanpat2 if you want to see me on Twitter. So, until next time, bear down. Cubs win! What a lucky break! The good Lord wants the Cubs to win! We thank Dick and God for all they have provided. Cubs win! Cubs win! Cubs win! Her, you can have her, she's a Packer fan. She can't fit in my van. And she looks like Remember New Yorkers. Smoking crack is not legal on planes. Bears 31, the negative 7. The Bears. Oh, when the Bears go bearing down.